Episode 46 is here. Thank you for joining wherever you're from, wherever you're at, whenever you're listening. Uh, glad you are tuning in for whatever reason. Uh, it is so hot, and I don't want this to ever become a podcast just talking about the weather, but I have been losing power like every week from this heat. I guess actually last night I lost power more so because of the... Um, crazy storm that came through it was like 96 degrees during the day and then it started hailing you know at one point so it's like holy wow it's just kind of bananas so uh here we are i, I got power back at like 11 30 last night just in time to go to bed so i didn't get to record this as soon as i wanted to but it's okay here we go jumping into a book that we've not done on the podcast before but i'm excited to share with you all so um parker palmer I'd never even heard of, I don't think. Uh, I'm sure I, in hindsight, must have read miscellaneous quotes in other books because he's super respected for all kinds of reasons. But I first encountered Palmer's work in seminary in my first year when I started taking the spiritual formation class. It's mandatory for all students. It's a year-long course, and it's you know, half academic, but it's half practice, like where we're literally just doing spiritual formation stuff together. And one of the first things we had to do was read Parker Palmer's book, Let Your Life Speak, subtitle, Listening for the Voice of Vocation. Now, uh, a lot of this book, um, I mean, it, first of all, it's a very quick book. So it's like 105 pages, 110 pages, and then it's literally tiny. So very good read, very quick read. I really can, you know, recommend it to just about everybody that is interested in kind of reflecting on their own life's calling. Uh, and and this has been something that's been a common theme in many of the books I've been reading over the last year and a half. Not really on purpose, but it just keeps happening, right? Uh, I know we did a couple episodes on the War of Art, where that's kind of not necessarily talking about vocation, but similarly talking about like this, this calling in our lives to a certain kind of art and movement. Um, and here we are with Parker Palmer. This is uh, not only about vocation, that, that's a big part of it, but it's also about leadership and the importance of understanding where leadership comes from how where it resides in us and how we actually do it well and so those ideas kind of flow from one another so i just finished this book again i haven't touched it since um that first year of seminary back in 2019 and now i'm i revisited it actually because uh my pastor read it as a devotional just a little excerpt so I, I, I'll tell you what the chapters are called, and then we're actually going to start with the end of the book. I, I don't know if I'm going to go back to the beginning or not. So the first chapter is called Listening to Life. So basically the premise of the book, and he's going with some old tradition here, but that vocation is actually like a voice in you. And of course, from the Christian perspective, which Palmer's a part of, you'd say, you know, it's the spirit leading us. But vocation is this voice calling out to you, telling you like, this is the way you have to go. Your job and your vocation are not the same thing necessarily, right? Your job might be what you do. Your vocation is what you're called to. Sometimes you're called to things beyond your job. Sometimes you're lucky enough that your job aligns with your vocation. Some people would say that's actually, 
you know, a curse as much as a blessing that your job and your vocation are the same thing. So listening to life, that whole first chapter is about kind of leaning into how do we hear that voice and what, what muddies the voice. Again, I think a lot of that overlaps with some of the stuff we've done with the war of art, but I, I like Palmer's perspective. The second chapter is called now I become myself. He's really leaning on, um, a number of traditional ideas in the early church for sure um, all the way through, but for sure also leaning on the work of Thomas Merton from the 19th century, 19, uh, 20th century, I should say um, talking about the true and the false self. And basically that like, we know, you know, as children who we are. And then as we get older society, our family, our jobs, they, they shape us into the kinds of people they want us to be. So we become something else. So important, part of discerning our vocation is becoming who we were always intended to be as image bearers of the divine. Who are you uniquely supposed to be? Um, so the great chapter as well. Um, I will say chapter three and chapter four were the two that I disliked most. And it wasn't like, oh man, this, this is bad. I disagree with all of this. It was frankly, uh, I was just kind of like, oh yeah, like, par for the course kind of thing. Um, chapter three is called when way closes and it's kind of unpacking some of the ideas of what happens when you're not really seeing that calling in your life. And then chapter four is all the way down. And this is where Palmer, you know, gets very candid about like struggling with depression and like just wanting to end his own life. And, you know, the struggles of like trying to be someone that's discerning the spirit in his life and being someone that believes in God and yet also struggling with this immense mental health and how that plays a role in our perception of vocation. Um, so just throw that out there. Uh, and then what I want to talk to you uh, today, talk to you about today is the last two chapters. The reality is I'll probably only be able to do one chapter because um, there's a lot of good stuff. Um, so chapter five, leading from within, and then chapter six is there is a season. So I'm not going to give you too much of the heads up of what those are because I'm going to talk about it for the next, you know, who knows how long. So leading from within, that is chapter five. There's only, again, six chapters in this book. That's it. So um, it's a quick read. I think it's worth picking up at some point for you all uh, to think about. And so uh, it, it's kind of chronological the way that he's telling a story of his life, but that's really anecdotal. For the most part, he's really just laying out big ideas about these things. So since chapter four is about going all the way down through that depressive parts, he's laying out like we can't pretend that the dark and the shadows and all of these terrible things that happen in life don't happen. You have to learn how to dwell with those things. And once you're able to be honest about that reality, then that gets us to chapter five. You can start to lead from within. So just, again, like a usual, I'm just going to start by reading a couple excerpts here. He says, from the depths of depression, I turn now to our shared vocation of leadership in the world of action. This may seem more like a leap than a turn, but none of the great, great wisdom traditions would look upon this with surprise. Go far enough on the inner journey, they all tell us. Go past the ego towards your true self, and you end up not lost in narcissism, but actually returning to the world, bearing more gracefully the responsibilities that come 
with being human. So this point being, again, we have to learn how to do the deep internal self-reflective work. We have to face the worst parts of ourselves. We have to sit in that and rest in that. We have to be honest with ourselves, be honest with God about those things. And it's from that place, spending all that time with yourself, you would think it's like a surefire way to become a raging narcissist. He says, no, when you actually are engaged in that work, what happens is that you return to the world more gracefully to face your responsibilities as a human. And that's why I really enjoy this chapter and the next one, um, because he's really taking on leadership um, from a different perspective. He says, leadership is a concept we often resist. It seems immodest, uh, self-aggrandizing to think of ourselves as leaders. But if it's true that we were made for community, then leadership is everyone's vocation. And it can be an evasion to insist that it's not. He says, I lead by word and deed simply because I'm here doing what I do. And if you are also here doing what you do, then you also exercise leadership of some sort. Very important there. Uh, again, there are people that we, we use this language a lot in our society. Oh, you're a natural leader. Like, wow, what does that even mean? Right? Like, what is natural leadership? People follow you. That can be a good and bad thing. Uh, you're good at asserting your will. Are you like really wise at discerning between right and wrong answers? Like, what do we mean by natural leader? Where you're someone that's comfortable being in charge. Is a leader always the one in charge? I was blown away when I was playing soccer uh, in middle school when I first started playing soccer because we were playing against this team that was really good. And, um, you know, it's kind of like football. Like as a kid, you, we don't have com complex thinking nailed down, right? So you're thinking about um, sports analogies, right? So I'm thinking about football and you go, oh yeah, the captain of the team is always going to be the quarterback. Why? Because the media glorifies quarterbacks. Yeah, wide receivers are cool and they make the amazing touchdown celebrations and running backs are really tough, but quarterbacks make it all happen. And when you're really wise and mature, you realize quarterbacks are just one small piece of the puzzle, right? But as a kid, you just go, oh, quarterback equals captain, leader. That is not always the case. And in my brain, you know, translating that as a middle schooler, and I did not grow up playing soccer, I'm playing this team in soccer. I just assume that, you know, the captain of a soccer team is the one that scores all the goals. That's their job. That's the leader. They're the one in the front leading the charge to win the game. And this team we played had a sweeper who was like, he, he, I'm going to exaggerate. I think he was like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, tall, lanky, but like not lanky and like he was, he, he was definitely strong, right? Um, but the sweeper in soccer is the person, he, like central defense. We'll just say that for layman's terms. So he's in the back and he's leading from back there. He's the captain. He's like shouting out commands to the entire field. And everyone followed his leadership. And he was the nicest guy, too. Like, opposing soccer team, you don't want to like anybody, right? We're, we're going to do this thing. We're going to win. But I was blown away because I'm like, oh, that guy, that's so weird. He, how is he the captain? He's on defense. Captain should be on offense because they should be leading the charge, getting the goals. Like, And it was a childish way of thinking. But I think you can connect the dots of how this bleeds into our entire mindset in society about leadership. 
that leaders are the ones going and producing, which will come very quickly to that idea um, of production for Parker uh, here. Um, but leadership is something else. I love this language that everybody is a leader and you exercise leadership in some sort. Even think about like the people that work a job, pick any job, you know, fast food restaurant, right? And someone starts a new job and you might not be a manager, but you're leading the new hire, right? Because you're telling them how things are. You're like, yeah, we're not supposed to be on our phone, but like you can be on your phone if you're over here. You know, I worked at Olive Garden for a while and like, I was like, so like, okay, I got to follow all the rules and everyone kind of made fun of me. And they're like, dude, those are the rules, but that's not what we do here. Like, here's how you actually work here. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is easier than I thought it'd be. They weren't leaders based on their position at Olive Garden. They were other servers. They were other hostesses. They were peers. And yet they were exercising kinds of leadership, right? It happens in every realm. Even the people that are quietest are leading somebody or somehow. And so we have to start with taking responsibility as image bearers that we are called to leadership in some way. So then the question becomes like, what kind of leaders are we? What kind of leadership do we exercise in the world around us? So Palmer goes on, I'm skipping a large section where he's like talking about the Czech Republic and the president, um, Vaclav Havel. Um, This is written a while ago. So I think this is from the 1990s that he's referencing. I don't know. I don't know if he's still president, but he's getting to this idea. So I'm just going to skip all the fodder there. You can read on your own. He talks about um, this, this quote, consciousness precedes being. He says, and the salvation of this human world lies nowhere else than in the human heart. Now, obviously, we would say that's fundamentally wrong on some level, right? He's quoting this guy from a Christian perspective, but, but stick with me for a little bit. He says, material reality, Havel claims, is not the fundamental factor in the movement of human history consciousness is awareness is thought is spirit is these aren't just dreams they're the inner points from which oppressed people have gained the leverage to lift immense boulders and release transformative change so what's he saying he's saying yeah the material world the things that are physiologically happening around us absolutely that's part of reality but what actually matters is spirit, is thought. It's when things are all going haywire, things are all going wrong, and you have the thought that it's wrong. And the consciousness of that, the thinking, without actual change in the reality, is what leads to anything being able to be changed. The important thing of any movement, any idea, any development in society is our ability to think. And communities think together. And so he talks about like capitalism in that way. He says, we capitalists have a long crippling legacy of believing in the power of external realities much more deeply than we believe in the power of the inner life. Um, So he says, how many times have you heard something like that's an inspiring notion, but the hard truth of the matter is, or the reality is, it's like, yes, there is the reality, but it doesn't mean that we can't think of how things should be. And that's a deeply Christian idea, right? That things are not as they should be, that we are supposed to play a role 
in making things as they should be. Or I, I would add an anecdote that we should join Jesus in the work of, of making things as they should be. Join Jesus in the work of building the kingdom. It's already being built. We are invited to join in that. Why? Because we are image bearers of the divine. It is our universal calling as human beings. He says, the great insight of our spiritual traditions is that we, especially those who enjoy political freedom and relative, relative affluence, are not victims of the society. We are co-creators. We are responsible for what our society is. Everyone that looks out at society and goes, this is horrible. I can't believe it's this way. We're a part of the problem. You can say, well, it's not. No, I'm a minority of the good people and all the bad people are making it. We are all creating the society we live in every day. A band I love, uh, you know, I haven't listened to as much recently, but I especially loved growing up. Switchfoot has a, um, a song called The World You Want. And it's just this refrain. Is this the world you want? You're making it every day you're alive. Everything you do, everything you say contributes to the society in which we live in. Your presence influences your friends, your mini community, your microcosm of the broader society. But if you and all your friends are on the same page about what it means to love your neighbor and love your enemy, that's going to impact all of the neighbors and enemies you encounter, which in turn is going to impact the way that your broader community functions. We are all a part of this society. We are co-creators in it. And Palmer goes on, he says, we live in and through a complex interaction of spirit and matter of the powers inside of us and the stuff, quote unquote, out there in the world. He says, if our institutions are rigid, it's because our hearts fear change. If they set us in mindless competition with each other, it's because we value victory over all else. If they are heedless of human well-being, it's because something in us is heartless as well. We can make choices about what we are going to project. And with those choices, we can help grow the world that is consciousness precedes being consciousness yours and mine can form deform or reform our world our complicity in world making is a source of awesome and painful responsibility and a source of profound hope for change complicity is such an important word hear this again our complicity in world making in being co-creators of society, co-creators of community, our complicity is a source of awesome and painful responsibility, a source of profound hope for change. It is the common ground for our common call to leadership, the truth that makes leaders of all of us. Christian language here, this is what we mean when we're talking about the priesthood of all believers, the notion that, yeah, there are priests, but we're all called to be priests in some sense, that we all have a calling in this life to do something with the faith that has been passed on to us. Oh, man, this is so important, right? Like, we are complicit in the way that things are, which means we need to stand up and change the way that things are. So then he goes on to this next section. This is still a chapter leading from within, for sure not getting to the final chapter. It's another episode. 
And this next section is called Shadows and Spirituality. It says, a leader is someone with the power to project either shadow or light onto some part of the world and onto the lives of the people who dwell there. A good leader is intensely aware of the interplay of inner shadow and inner light, lest the act of leadership do more harm than good. The premise here is that if you don't acknowledge and understand your own inner shadow, then you cannot be a good leader. If you're not able to own the fact that you have a shadow side, a dark side, a, a fallen side, shortcomings, all of the above, not in some you know false humility kind of way, but no, like someone that has really sat with, that has gone down into the depths of your own soul to realize and own that shadow, then you can't be a good leader. He says, uh, we have a long tradition of approaching leadership via the power of positive thinking. I want to counterbalance that approach by paying special attention, attention to the tendency we have as leaders to project more shadow than light. He says, leadership is hard work for which one is regularly criticized and rarely rewarded. So it's understandable that we need to bolster ourselves with positive thoughts. But by failing to look at our shadows, our darkness, our shortcomings, we feed a dangerous delusion that leaders too often indulge in, that our efforts are always well-intended, our power is always benign, and the, power, the problem is always in those difficult people we're trying to lead. So again, to summarize, he's saying that the problem with like just surrounding ourselves with nothing but positive thoughts as, as people, right? Because now again, even if I keep saying as leaders, you're going to think of like some other leader or your specific role in your job or your church or your home. Like, no, we're all leaders. So when we start to get into this mindset, like, well, yeah, leaders are always criticized. Like, so we need to be positive about what we do. That leads to this dangerous overcorrection. And delusion, Palmer calls it, where we start to say that everything we do is always well-intended. We have no malintent. That our power, you know, it's benign. Like, we can't do as much as we even want to do. And then the real problem, the most important problem, is the people that we're trying to lead, they're just, they're so difficult. They just don't get it. And it puts us in the position of altruism every time. That's a problem. That's what happens when we lean on this power of positive thinking rather than accepting and acknowledging our own shadows, our own spiritual shortcomings. And so he, he goes on and he says, leaders need not only the technical skills to manage the external world, but also the spiritual skills to journey inward toward the source of both your shadow and your light. He says, the spiritual journey runs counter to the power of positive thinking. If we don't understand that the enemy is within, we will find a thousand ways of making somewhere, someone, quote unquote, out there into the enemy, becoming leaders who oppress rather than liberate others. Now, let's go into Christianese for a little bit. Um, you know, I preached the other day. Usually I do a sermon deep dive, but I really had to get some thoughts out on this book as quick as possible. But I did a sermon 
when um, the story of the Jesus liberating uh, this man from a demon possession and the demon goes into the herd of pigs and the pigs jump off the cliff. And, you know, I kind of, I purposefully kind of lured people in with that story and then didn't really talk about the demon part so much, knowing that that's kind of the, the exciting, you know, uh, part of it right people oh yeah let's talk about like let me learn about demon possession someone said to me afterwards like i was hoping you were going to give us a lesson on like demon stuff like personally i don't think that's a great you know the pulpit's not a great place to do that i'm not saying we should never talk about demons it's just really complicated and whatever um but one of the things that i find in my own experience which is like western culture 21st century obviously is that we often like to externalize our problems, right? So even on a spiritual level, if I feel like something's going wrong in my spiritual life, I blame the devil. I blame demons. I blame people out there, anyone but myself, because it's it must be an outward force working on me, right? Trying to oppress me, keep me down, like just delude my thoughts. And, you know, it, it must be something out there rather than acknowledging like the the darkness in yourself the sin in yourself your own capacity to fall short I, you know i i used to be a part of this bible study in uh late high school early college and and there were people there that were very much in that i mean to the point where sometimes like they would be late to bible study and we, we were chill like it wasn't like oh my gosh you're late right it was like two and a half three hours sometimes hanging out and they'd be like, yeah, you know, I just feel like the devil is really working against me today. Like I hit, I hit every red light on my way here. And I just feel like I just felt the devil like working on my patience. And it was just like, I just needed the spirit to win that battle for me. It's like, what? Okay. Now, if I get to heaven one day, God willing. And God's like, dude, you were totally wrong about that, Mike. The devil was working against them and made them hit all those red lights. I'm like, all right, I'll take that L that loss for all my older listeners. That's what the L is. But the reality is like, dude, you probably left too late. Like you can't blame traffic on the devil. Like I'm going to make Mike Kramer mad today by hitting the traffic. Now I'm jinxing myself because I have to drive across the turnpike. I'm totally going to hit traffic. And then it's really going to be the devil's fault. Um, but you, you know what I mean? Like people looking for a way to externalize this reality, this struggle, this this wrestling that they deal with. And sometimes it's not some outside force. Sometimes the reason that you feel tempted towards something that you know is wrong to gossip or to to lose your temper or, you know, whatever it might be. It's not necessarily some outside force working against you, even though I do believe in powers and principalities like Paul talks about. Sometimes it's just the inward problem of your own capacity for sinfulness. Palmer says to reiterate, if we don't understand that there is an enemy within, we find a thousand ways of making the people out there the enemy. And we become leaders that oppress rather than liberate when we're just always looking for someone to blame other than our ourselves. And this is not like an invitation for you to like, just view yourself as the worst human ever and just always put yourself down. Da, 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 da. No, but the point is like, we have to have a healthy understanding that like you can do bad all on your own without anyone tempting you to do it. 
Like we all will succumb to greed at some point in our lives. We all will succumb to like wrath, to gluttony, to slothfulness, like these vices in our lives. It's not because there's necessarily some other outside force going, oh yeah, lose your temper here. Sometimes you just lose your temper because that's part of who you are. We have to acknowledge those battles happening in our inward selves because without it, we're guaranteed to be leaders that lead into a far worse place than we ever could have planned for. So Palmer goes on a little bit. He says, but why would anyone want to take the journey of that sort with its difficulties and dangers? Everything in us cries out against us. And that's frankly why we externalize everything. It's so much easier to deal with the external world, to spend our lives manipulating material and institutions and even people instead of dealing with our own souls. We like to talk about the outer world as if it were infinitely complex and demanding, but it's a cakewalk compared to the labyrinth of our inner lives. I know that I've talked about this before. Sorry, I had to get a sip of coffee. I know that I've talked about this before, but uh, in a couple of books, but definitely Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, uh, the premise is set up that I think is a scary one that I have to come to terms with regularly. Um, we're a, a society now that constantly has some kind of noise, right? Even me, you know, I'm, I'm not even the biggest tech head, but I kind of am. Like, I'm in denial about it. There's rarely a time in my day when I don't have a YouTube video playing, a podcast playing, or music playing, something is going on so that like I can like engage. And like I want to lie to myself and say, it's because I want to learn, I want to grow, I want to have fun. There are times when you are just trying to drown out something else. Because if you're in silence for long enough, you'll have to actually start addressing some of the labyrinths of our inner lives. Sometimes there are, are ideas about yourself you don't want to confront, so you're drowning that out. Sometimes there are concerns. Sometimes there's a conversation with God that you don't want to have, and you're not even conscious of that. You are subconsciously trying to drown out those moments. That's why the practice, the discipline of silence and solitude in the Christian tradition is so important. The 16th century Blaise Pascal said all of humanity's problems boils down to the fact that human beings are not good at sitting in a room alone in silence. That was the 16th century. That was before the internet. You know what I mean? Like, what were they doing where they couldn't sit? You'd think, like, I just lost power and I'm just sitting around in my house. Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, and I like camping, right? But that's different when you plan to not have power. When power is taken away from you, you're like, well, I, I don't really know what to do anymore. I guess I'll charge my phone. I shouldn't watch anything. Can I read a book? Oh, there's not enough light. You know, like the inability to sit in a room alone in silence and solitude. Think about that. The 16th century human beings were still pro having a problem with that. We've just exacerbated the problem. We've just created even more noise for us to drown out the silence with. And so we have to learn how to address the inner self because if we don't, we can't lead well. So the final section, he says, out of the shadow and into the light, Palmer says, if we as leaders are to cast less shadow and more light, we need to ride certain monsters. There's an analogy I kind of skipped over, but 
It's fine. You get the gist. We need to ride certain monsters all the way down. We need to explore the shadows they create and experience the transformation that can come as we get into our own spiritual lives. And so he's going to name a couple of these shadows. He says the first shadow casting monster is insecurity about identity and worth. Many leaders have an extroverted personality that makes this shadow hard to see, insecurity and identity and worth. He says, but extroversion sometimes develops in us as a way to cope with self-doubt. We plunge into external activity to prove that we are worthy or simply to evade the question. There is a well-known form of this syndrome, especially among men, in which our identity becomes so dependent on performing some external role that we become depressed and even die when it's taken away. We become insecure about our identities, and when we do, we create settings that deprive people of their identities in the name of buttressing our own. So shadow number one, insecurity about our identities and our worth. He says, a second shadow inside many of us is the belief that the universe is a battleground hostile to human interests. Notice how often we use images of warfare as we go about our work, especially in organizations. We talked about tactics and strategies, allies, enemies, wins, and losses, do or die. And if we fail to be fiercely competitive, the imagery suggests we will lose because the world we live in is essentially a combat zone. Unfortunately, life is full of self-fulfilling prophecies. The tragedy of this inner shadow, our fear of losing the fight, is that it helps create conditions where people feel compelled to live as, as if they were at war. Yes, the world is competitive, but largely because we make it so. Remember, we are co-creators in this society, in this reality. Some of our best institutions, from corporations to change agencies to schools, are learning that there is another way of doing business, a way that's consensual, cooperative, and communal, and they're fulfilling a different prophecy than this warfare one. The gift we receive on the inner journey is the insight that the universe is working together for good. Romans 8.28 we believe that God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called to his purpose. Again, I won't get on that soapbox. That does not mean that everything happens for a reason. I guess technically that's true. Sometimes the reason is you suck. I suck. We fall short. It doesn't mean that like God is zapping people with diseases for a reason for some broader, beautiful purpose, but it does mean that God can work things together for good. The world is working together for good. The universe, he says, the structure of reality is not the structure of a battle. Reality, it's not out to get anybody. Yes, there's death, but that's part of the cycle of life. And when we learn to move gracefully with the cycle, a great harmony can come into our lives. Running out of time here, so I'm going to hit these last two. A third shadow common among leaders is functional atheism. Lean into this one. The belief that the ultimate responsibility for everything rests with us. Whew, that's a tough one. He says, this is the unconscious, unexamined conviction that if anything decent will happen in this life, 
We are the ones that must make it happen. A conviction held even by people who talk a great game about God. The shadow causes pathology on every level of our lives and leads us to impose our wills on others, stressing our relationships, sometimes to the point of breaking. It eventuates in burnout, depression, and despair as we learn that the world will not bend to our will, and we become embittered about that fact. It's the shadow that drives collective frenzy. It explains why the average group can tolerate no more than 15 seconds of silence. If we're not making noise, we believe, nothing good's happening. The gift of the inner journey is the knowledge that ours is not only is not the only act in town, that there are other people that are working and other people that are better than us. And that's not something that we need to be insecure about or feel belittled about. We should celebrate because we together make up a unit. In the church, we call it the body of Christ. The fourth shadow within and among us is fear, especially our fear of the natural chaos of life. We want to organize and orchestrate things so thoroughly that messiness will never bubble up around us and threaten to overwhelm us. Because messiness is really just dissent. Um, or I'm sorry, when you hear messiness, you should hear the words dissent, innovation, challenge, and change. He says, in families, churches, and corporations, this shadow is projected as rigidity of rules and procedures, creating an ethos that's imprisoning rather than empowering. And the insight we receive on the inner journey is that chaos is the precondition for creativity. Can't get into the Hebrew right now, but Genesis 1 there's, there's language there that seems to imply that there's chaos in the uncreated world and that God's creativity, God's creation of all that is comes out of chaos. But chaos is the precondition. He says, my final example of the shadows that leaders project is paradoxically the denial of death itself uses the example of a scientist. He says, a good scientist does not fear the death of a hypothesis because that failure, quote unquote, clarifies the steps that need to be taken toward truth, sometimes more than a hypothesis that succeeds. The best leaders in every setting rewards people for taking worthwhile risks, even if they're likely to fail. The gift we receive on the inner journey is that knowledge is the knowledge that death finally comes to everything. And yet death does not have the final word. By allowing something to die when its time is due, we create the conditions under which new life can emerge. Oh, man. I'm telling you, this is uh, a great final two chapters of this book. Um, I, I wish I could do the other chapter right now, but I can't. And I think it'd make this episode way too long for all of you anyways. So I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, I was speeding through in some ways, but I hope you could get a glimpse into why it's important for us to acknowledge our own re responsibilities as leaders in the world. We are leading in some kind of capacity, in some kind of areas. We're leading either for good or for bad. In the words of James K.A. Smith, I did an episode on his book, You Are What You Love. He says, there's nothing neutral in this reality. Everything has the capacity to push us closer to God or further from God. 
even things that we count as good, godly things. Church can push you further from God. That could be a you thing, or it could be the church. But in the same way, music can push you closer or further. Clothing, your, your passion for art, your obsession with health, all of these things can point us toward or away from God. Nothing's neutral. We all have the responsibility to lead Paul's language, the priesthood of all believers. We're called into this life as image bearers of God to help create, to be co-heirs with Christ. And that requires us to take responsibility for our complicity, to not just keep pointing out there at the people that are doing everything wrong, except that we have the capacity to influence and change at least the people closest to us. That's enough. Continue to change the people closest to you, really change, and they'll change the people closest to them, and it'll continue to happen. It's a ripple effect that, that nothing can stop because consciousness precedes being. Our ability to think, our ability to live by the Spirit is so much more impactful than the reality of things. Think about like first century Rome. Was there another reality that could overtake Rome at that time? No. Historians, I'm pretty sure, lean on the idea that Rome self-destructed. There was no outside power that could defeat this superpower, this, this empire. But there were thoughts. There was spirit. Think about all of the major movements, slavery. How did slavery ever end? Because there at some point was a person, just one, and eventually five, and 500, and then thousands that said, this is not what reality should be. The moment we admit that there is a should or an ought, Lewis talks about this a lot, you're, you're getting your finger closer to the pulse of how reality was always intended to be that there's a broader calling. But sometimes we don't notice the oughts, that things ought not be this way, or rather, in a more positive sense, things ought to be this other way. We need to learn how to do the inward journey down, to face our own shadows. And here's the hardest part. It's not a one-time journey. It's a regular journey. There's my alarm. It's a regular journey we all go on, or we should be going on, to acknowledge the places in which we need the Spirit more than ever to lead us out of, so that we can truly lead, holding in tension the paradoxical reality of shadow and light. The brightest lights call, cast shadows, but the smallest light can, can also diffuse those shadows. There's a reason these metaphors become cliche and sometimes cringy in movies and books, but it's because it's something fundamentally true about the world. And that's the world that you and I and anyone who ends up listening to this podcast or doesn't, we have to acknowledge at some point. We were created with the purpose of joining in the work of the kingdom of God. And that work is the most rewarding thing we can partake in. And it's going to look different for all of us. You can't just project your expectations of what that work should look like onto other people. It's going to look differently. We've got different gifts and different talents. 
and that's okay. But we're all leaders in some sense. I don't care if you feel like you're a natural leader. You're called to be a leader. You're called to draw forth the goodness out of those around you. You're called to shine your light. That's what leadership is. Shine the light that you've been given to help inspire and lead those that follow. So that's Parker Palmer. Let your life speak. That's chapter five. We'll probably return for chapter six because uh, it's fresh on my mind. Um, but I got to get on the road. So thank you all for listening. Wherever you find yourself, reflect on how do you start that inward journey? Maybe it starts with 90 seconds of silence. Turn your phone off just for 90 seconds. If it gives you anxiety to turn your phone off for 90 seconds, that is an indication of the problem. Start with 90 seconds. Silence. Don't make a prayer request during that time. That's not your prayer time. Just silence. Just sit and see if you can empty your mind. And if you can't, it sounds like there's a lot of things going on up in your mind. You should address those things. After 90 seconds, write down all the things you couldn't stop thinking about. That's your list of things you should start thinking about. Okay? Go from there. We'll get back to another episode next week. Thanks for listening. We'll talk soon.